0: Hi, welcome to Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees and lots of other things that we found out about becoming a lawyer and the people that do.
1: Some legal roles get a lot of publicity, like city solicitors and criminal practitioners are always getting portrayed on television and talked about in the media. But on this podcast, we wanted to shed some light on some brilliant legal jobs that you hear a lot less about than other legal jobs that are perhaps more visible or get more attention. So, over the next three episodes, we're going to be meeting some people working in law who might get you thinking about alternative careers you haven't thought about before. I started out by meeting the extraordinary Siobhan Taylor-Ward, who works in the heart of her community at the Vauxhall Law
2: Centre in Liverpool. Law centres are set up within the community. It was a movement in the 1970s and 80s where lawyers... Basically wanted to be able to provide legal advice on the issues that matter within the communities. We provide specifically at the moment, it's welfare benefits advice, debt advice and housing advice. In the past, it's been things like employment advice or personal injury, like industrial injury type claims. But basically the way we provide advice in the community is by seeing what our community is asking for and then looking for ways of funding that advice and getting lawyers in to be able to provide the advice so part of working in the law centre is about having a kind of holistic approach to your clients ours is a real real community law centre it's off Scotland Road, which is quite a famous road in North Liverpool Mm -hmm. it's a really strong community you get people that are told by their friends the mums the grandparents to come to us when they've got a problem and it's kind of in the hope that we can help with whatever the issue is but we're not a generalist advice service so that's not the case so if we see that we're getting increasing numbers of a specific type of inquiry then that's when we would start considering do we need to expand services um but in general everybody has got kinds of housing issues or at some point may have a benefits issue or you know and with those issues comes debt as well so they kind of really complement each other. In sort of researching the role of, of
1: law centres for this conversation, the word holistic kind of cropped up for me a bunch of times mm-hmm. when I thought about mm-hmm. the work that solicitors like yourself do. I did some some volunteer work and some work as a, as a lawyer in Australia at law centres that specialise in really similar issues. I definitely uh, recognise the kind of holistic nature of the advice you give because, as you say, one issue like homelessness can quickly uh, snowball into other issues around, let's say, yeah, death. Um, also, I, I recall sort of family um, family law yeah, issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wondered, just from a practical perspective, you talk about, you know, phone inquiries, and that must be something at the moment in, in COVID that, you know, that's probably, I assume, the primary way that people come to mm-hmm. you. But you talked about word of mouth. Do you get ordinarily people walking in off the street? Do you get referrals
2: from other people? How do people actually access the law centre? At the moment, um, because of COVID, the, the main contact for clients is through telephone inquiries. Mm-hmm. We've got kind of online forms that re- referring like organisations can complete. So it can come from your, your GP maybe or... Um, social worker or even just a support worker in another like support organisation mm. um, and we get a lot of referrals in from our local MPs as well so there's quite a lot of ways that people come to us and because we are kind of so embedded in the community and so old now <laughs> um, people have heard of us and mm. when they think oh I've got a legal issue they think I'll phone Foxhall Law Centre especially in kind of the north of the city. Mm. So it's that kind of notoriety Um, In a positive sense. Um, Yeah, absolutely. uh, Okay.
1: I mean, I'm interested, you talk about yourself and your colleagues as kind of caseworkers. Now, I appreciate you probably meant that in a a sort of legal sense, but I imagine a lot of your work is kind of a bit hybrid. Do you sort of feel like you take on uh, a bit of a sort of social welfare role in addition
2: to your legal role? I think that's getting worse over Mm. time because – I suppose either they've already got mental health problems or health problems which have led to some of the issues or the fact that they're going through so many terrible things lead them to develop mental health issues and services are really, really overstretched. So maybe there's no social services available or you know, they're kind of bottom priority because they're not as severe as everybody else on the list. Or you know, th- those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, where it's really difficult to be able to signpost somebody to the support that they clearly need. and um, so that is really hard to then say no to mm, them. I can imagine. I have to make really clear with my clients what I'm going to be able to help them with and what I'm not going to be able to help them with. And I always make sure that I know where to signpost them to. I wouldn't leave an issue hanging for instance I do a lot of work with asylum seekers or vulnerable migrants and Mm -hmm. I've got a really good kind of network in our local area so in the like a case where I thought they really need some quick support I would be able to contact so I think for me um I find it really important to have collaboration with other organizations Mm -hmm. and to work well with them, and at least if you've either sent a referral or given them the information, at least you know that you've done what you can.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, it sounds it sounds like a really uh, you know, in equal
1: parts rewarding and challenging role. Mm-hmm. Can I can I draw out some of the specialisms that that you've mentioned along the way? There, it sounds like uh, sort of homelessness and social welfare law are one of your particular focuses. For for our listeners, I mean. Can you elucidate what some of the kind of key legal issues are in this space? I mean, I think we're probably all aware of, in COVID, a lot of the uh, sort of eviction and and rent hike freezes that have been instituted. Uh, What are the other kind of crunch
2: points or or, or key legal issues that your clients are experiencing? Throughout COVID, the cases that were mainly coming through were to do with kind of disrepair and failure to respond to repair requests. Things like rodent infestations have been a serious problem, and I believe that that's to do with when the city is shut down and all the the restaurants were closed the rodents like went out to find food elsewhere and that's just been awful for people to to be living with whilst also being in lockdown with those rodents so you Mm, know mm. there was quite a few cases of vulnerable migrants with no recourse to public funds who needed help with emergency accommodation um and then over time that's kind of changed as things have changed so Late last year, the, the Home Office was wanting to restart evictions of all the people that they'd agreed to accommodate during the, the pandemic. Right. Um, and so there is kind of a reactive response where we were having to appeal all of those decisions um, and... It was a really good response because it was kind of organised within the, the legal community and the sector as a whole, where we were all trying to do the same kinds of legal actions, appeal and a pre-action letter against the policy, and um, to the point where we were able to prevent them from continuing with the eviction. So a high court order in, an, in a case from Greater Manchester Law Centre mm-hmm. meant that the restart of the eviction process was halted. And the home office decided to halt it. And so, you know, that was obviously quite stressful, fast paced work, really mm. exciting and mm. something where we made a real difference really quickly. If we can kind of unpack practically what your work looks like, if we
1: take the eviction ban and the challenge that you made, you, you talked about um, putting in a high court application. As a solicitor, what what does your day look like when you're making an application of that nature? Can you talk through sort of how that decision is made and what it looks like practically?
2: Yeah. So just to be clear, that wasn't my application that went to the high court. That was right. Greater Manchester okay, Law Centre. Sure. But at the time we were all working in conjunction. So we'd started to hold meetings through an organisation called ASAP, which is Asylum Support Appeals Project. Mm-hmm. Basically, um, through that group, we were holding meetings with the solicitors who were able to then push towards judicial review and basically had kind of shared templates of different pre-action letters and how, how we were going to approach it. And it was whoever's case got through would be, right, you know, okay. hopefully the one to make the law. Yeah. And locally, um, Greater Manchester Law Centre got through and Yeah. And and as I say, the High Court Order did put an injunction that meant that they weren't able to complete any further evictions of people who were being supported by under Section 4. And then, as I say, the Home Office withdrew the policy and said that they were Mm. going to review it. So obviously Mm. it was really impactful, really quite quickly. Yeah. It helped a lot of people. But at that time, it, I said earlier, it was really, really busy time. It was just you were having to take the cases as soon as they were coming on. And, and it's a really tight timescale for asylum support tribunals. Um, it's supposed to be that the appeal submitted within three days of the decision letter. So I'm sure you know that's quite a quick timescale for any Absolutely area right, of law. Yeah. Um, I've never had to deal with that with a tribunal mm. before. I'm working through to one o'clock in the morning quite wow. often. Yeah. But... As I say, like I'm really, really glad I got to be involved with that because it's still kind of early in my career to be to be doing such interesting and useful work, and I will take that with me forever. That experience that was
1: no, it's I mean it sounds amazing, and as you say, really impactful. I mean, something that really strikes me from that from that story um, is that the work you do is often surrounding, you know, let's say one client or a, you know, a client in their family, which is probably a very sort of personal, intimate journey. Mm-hmm. You go on with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and as you said before, providing to some extent not non-legal advice, but um, you know, support and assistance that probably stretches yeah. beyond, yeah, your role as lawyer. But at the same time, because of the kind of policy impact and the law reform that you see from law centers, because you're often at the forefront of gaps mm-hmm. in the law or inequalities mm-hmm. that other people just might not pick up because they're not dealing with clients that are in vulnerable situations, perhaps so often. Your work is very personal, but also really macro, because you, as you've just explained, you you know, you and and colleagues in in allied um, law centres were able to affect change in in, yeah. in government policy, yeah. which is incredible. I mean, does that ring true to you? You're nodding
2: um, for those who are listening. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's why I love law centres so much because mm. it is kind of it's advocacy, that- right? You have the advocacy, it's advocacy, arm. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's campaigns, and you can be. An activist and you can be more political without being aligned with a political party. In my experience it's been that there's a lot more freedom to be able to link your work to campaigning work and I really appreciate that because for me from the start I was working um, in private practice but doing the Hillsborough Inquest and then Asylum Law so still right. you know publicly funded work yeah. and during that time I joined Jungle Legal Aid Lawyers so that really helped me with that activist arm of things because I really feel sometimes that the more I know, um, the more problems I can see with the system and the more it feels like you're just one little person doing one little thing and it's, it, get, it can get a bit overwhelming or make you frustrated mm. um, when you feel like that. So I really like to be part of a community and that's what, while I was Young Legal Aid Lawyers, um, and was able then to get involved with things like social mobility work um, and campaigning on legal aid and things like that that made me feel like I was using my skills for other things as well for for wider change yeah and it also kind of provides you with this amazing network of all these amazing junior lawyers Mm. um, around the country that you'd probably never meet otherwise and I've found it a really, really good group to to carry you through when things mm. can get tough in this sector. I like the idea of a, a sort of support group, as it were, to, yeah. Yeah, in a way, yeah. To, yeah. to kind
1: of hear other people's experience. Could you give us a, an example of a, a difficult a difficult case or a difficult moment at work and how you, I guess, how, how you dealt with that or, or didn't, if the case may be?
2: During lockdown, I found it more difficult to deal with the, the kinds of vulnerable women who were telling me about, maybe sexual assault or domestic violence and I can't see them and I find that really really difficult because they can't see me and in practice in you know before COVID I would touch the hand or touch the shoulder Mm. or you know show by my face that I was empathizing and hearing and understanding and but it's so much harder to kind of show that when they've got no access to zoom or whatever so you're having to do everything by phone call Um so It takes, I feel, it takes longer to build their trust. Um, And also, I feel really mean because I'm kind of asking all these terrible questions of them for details. Mm. Because I'm thinking about a, a particular few cases that came up where women who were asylum seekers were being placed in hotel accommodation, which, you know, that's quite a common thing but much more common because of COVID and they'd be placed in the hotel but they might be the only woman there or they've not seen any other women so they think they're the only woman there Um, and they've been through some really terrible experiences at the hands of men and so are really afraid and feel really scared and uncomfortable and unsafe in, in that accommodation and obviously you know, what a hotel does, like, it's not the most you know, it doesn't feel that secure, does it? And yeah. 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 So they were basically coming to me because of the impact it was having on on their PTSD or their existing mental health problems and um, to ask for assistance to get them moved on because some of them had been left there for months and months and months on end and really deteriorated. But they are the ones that stick in my mind for the past year that I really like couldn't shake out my head straight away after and was kind of thinking about the poor woman and what she was feeling and how could I make it work quicker and you know um, even though I'd done what I needed to do still kind of racking my brains and it going through my head Um, and I think I do think that was more because I couldn't tell how she was after because I was leaving Mm. her completely alone in a room Mm. in a hotel where she didn't feel safe whereas at least you know you might finish the statement in the office but then you can have a bit of small talk or yeah, just a cup of tea. Comfort- yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm used to being able to kind of give that extra bit of care to vulnerable people. So that's been quite tough. And, and those ones have been really kind of hard to get out of my head.
1: It's really difficult. It's really difficult. I think that physical separation sounds yeah, yeah like an incredibly challenging part of it. That must also be a really challenging situation for you as a lawyer. How do you handle the kind of emotional toll that I imagine that exacts on on yourself
2: yeah it, it can be really really difficult at times because people are in situations that you could have ended up in yourself for a start mm-hmm. so sometimes you feel like god I'm really empathizing because I can imagine it um or you know it might involve children so you start thinking about your children or yeah. there's all kinds of things that kinds of weigh heavy and stick in your mind more than others but sometimes it's just the kinds of low level stress of deadlines or caseload worrying about getting back to emails or you know that kinds of thing but the things that I I find that help me one thing is going back to what I was saying about my like network I suppose so there's specific friends that also do the job and I can just go Ah, in a message to them and they'll know exactly how I'm feeling (laughs) and you don't have to kind of explain what what you're talking about really you just you know it's so much easier when it's someone who's experienced it as well and so that's really helpful. On top of that there's an organization called Claiming Spaces it's basically a support group for lawyers and it's about mainly learning to understand what you're experiencing so they kind of introduced me to the term vicarious trauma. So obviously your kind of experiencing traumatic events like on behalf of your clients and having to hear all the details yeah. and also maybe seeing them go through trauma in court if things go wrong or, you know, similar situations like that. So that, that's what they they put a name to it which helps you to start to then understand why it's happening and you know you're not being kind of silly or oversensitive or weak no. or anything it's a real result of what's happening to you and what you're experiencing and what you're dealing with and within those groups they help to give you ways of understanding it but then ways of dealing with it and also um just time to open up and you can all share if you want to and it's a really, really helpful group. The work that you do sounds incredibly busy. You talked about some of the time
1: frames with mm-hmm. the uh, m- migration tribunals. I read an interview that you did online and it had sort of your daily... Uh, daily life. Yeah, yeah, your, yeah your daily life. That. And I have to say, <laughs> my God, it was like military precision. It was sort of, yeah. you know... I do this for 20 minutes, I do that for 20 minutes, it's incredible. How do you maintain a work-life balance or is that a, something
2: that you, like a lot of
1: people, have to
2: have to work at? I definitely have to work at it but I think, I mean, my kids are really important to me so I make sure that I do my best with it, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I mean, obviously everybody's are but that's that's what I keep in the forefront yeah. of my mind is I don't want to feel like I was a good solicitor but not a good mum or do you know mm, what I mean? Of course, yeah. So I think um, – I, I always try to make sure that we've got good, nice plans at the weekend or that I definitely spend some one-to-one time with uh, my little boy every night and my big girl whenever I can. Yeah. Um, But I'll do things like get up super early and do it before school um, and then after bedtime be able to catch up again then I'll... You know, work after five, maybe. Um, but when I finish, I finish. Or you know mm. what I mean. I try to have a rule for myself. Whatever it might be, depending on what the deadline is that I've I've got on or the meeting that I've got to go to. Obviously, I'm not far from perfect. I, I could definitely spend more time, but I think. It is possible to have a family life um, and a, a fulfilling and mm. busy career. Yeah. Um, it's it's that, just difficult.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I can imagine. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that sounds really encouraging. And I mean, we talked a lot about the challenges in the profession, some of the legal issues, but still your, your work sounds incredibly rewarding and it sounds yeah. like you're part of this um, sort of wonderful community of other lawyers and also, you know, people in your community um, would you encourage your kids to enter the law? I know it's a yeah, bit early. I would, yeah. Yeah. No, I
2: would, yeah. I wouldn't I would definitely not discourage. I sometimes hear lawyers say that, oh, I'd never let and I think, oh God, I wouldn't I would never discourage people because I think there's so much amazing experience that you can get from this. Things that other people will just never be able to do because it's a specific role at a specific time in someone's life and specific experiences. And I feel really privileged to be able to be there for these people at these moments in life. And really kind of grateful that I've been able to get the knowledge that I need to be able to unlock things for people and move things forward for them. So um, although obviously there's a lot of like sad things that happen, there's a lot of days where you feel like you've actually helped somebody. And because it's about housing, you really are helping somebody (laughs) like they're either going to have a house or they're not going to have a house. Um. Obviously, recent times, there haven't been so many evictions to deal with, but things like being able to help somebody access the accommodation they need. The most recent case um was a family who were accommodated in temporary accommodation, and it was adult parents with an adult disabled daughter who was basically paralysed with shared facilities apart from a bedroom that they had to share. Mm. Ad- old parents over 70 sharing in a bunk bed, and they, all re- they also had their own health issues Uh, and basically it had been going on and on for ages but they hadn't been able to access the right support because of lockdown there was mm -hmm. no walk-ins they didn't know where to go Mm -hmm. again this was a case where it really made me I was thinking about it a lot and thinking how would my mum and dad be if they had to go through that situation how would that make me feel and you know all of that came kind of thing um but we were able to basically have to go to the pre-action stage of judicial review against mm-hmm. the the housing provider who move them within two weeks of our involvement into a house that was completely suitable they've all got their own room they've got the adaptations and they've had a full care and needs assessment from the new local authority to to offer support so that kind of thing how life-changing is that like incredible in in such a quick as you say such a quick time frame yeah I just think that that was a lot of work and it was sad but the outcome of that couldn't be any better and if you want kinds of your law to feel like you're really changing a real human's life in a massive way. This is the area to go into. Really. So if someone wanted
1: to work with you, Siobhan, and your colleagues uh, or a law centre close to where they live, how how would they do that? Who would they contact?
2: How would they find out where law centres are around the country? So the first tip is to just go and Google law centres network. Um, and because we're all part of a national network, so we're all individual organisations, but we have like an umbrella over us and if you go onto the network website there's kind of a search tool where you can use the map and basically just find what there is near and around you and um, if you're a law student a lot of the law, the law school law clinics already work with law centres and um, I know we have loads of students coming through doing volunteering on the welfare benefits team I've got two students who help me triage our housing inquiries and they're amazing and it's a really good experience for them and um, so that's one way. But also, if you find that there's a local law centre, send them an email and detail all the skills that you have. And, you know, it's not just about legal work, we need help with kinds of promotions and campaigns and blog writing. So, you know, think outside the box a bit, because it can also be like, we haven't got an artist or, you know, Mm. a team like that working for us. So if you're really good at making posters and leaflets and you know social media tell your local law centre that and then that could be really really helpful for them and then to to be able to qualify as a solicitor in a law centre is really really rare because obviously funding is low so it's more likely that you get employed either kind of not as a solicitor or as a solicitor rather than mm. having a trainee Tra- role yeah. so the main way to access a training contract is through something called the justice first fellowship and that's what you did
1: isn't that and right? that's what i did yeah. so
2: that is um what it's funded by the legal education foundation mm-hmm. and it's a fellowship where there's about 15 to 20 people each year who have a place at a law centre for instance but sometimes like NGOs as well and the Justice Fairs Fellowship funds all of your training costs, it funds like the, the support you need from management and it funds your solicitor's qualifications um, and you also get involved in things like extra extra training, extra conferences provided by the Legal Education Foundation on for instance, campaigning and fundraising, all the things that you really need to be good at if you're going to work in mm, the law centre. Yeah. Um, so if if you've got, you know, kind of you have whetted your appetite for coming into this area of law, go and have a look at the Justice First Fellowship. Something to watch out for, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And awesome. then also, if you go and look for Young Legal Aid Lawyers, we have a really good jobs page on there as well, mm-hmm. which does include sometimes voluntary opportunities as well as um, paid work in the sector and then finally in young legal aid lawyers and um, we have mentors as well so you can sign up to ask for a mentor and I'm a mentor to three people at the moment we, we all take on what we, we can and we can have personal discussions then about you know what your background is where you want to go and what's the best things for you to do personally and that can be really really helpful I know it helped me years ago
1: That was social welfare and housing solicitor Siobhan Taylor Ward. Now I'm joined by my colleague Georgie. Hi Georgie, how are you? Hello, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Good. Georgie, one thing I really took away from my conversation with Siobhan was the incredible impact that she has on the lives of her clients. She's, you know, in direct contact with them, obviously pre-COVID, you know, meets with them in person, understands Mm. the needs of her community and so her role to me it's just so transformative. Did you get that vibe as well? Absolutely,
0: like absolutely. I was making yeah. some notes as we went along and I wrote in caps. She literally makes the world a better place. Like <laughs> like oh, like, that's like she absolutely does and it's yeah. so amazing to be able to have like such a profound impact like that story she talked about about you know the old couple who were living in bunk beds and then like oh, like
1: extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Putting,
0: uh, you know a case together and it being sorted out in a matter of weeks like that's that's beautiful that's brilliant like what a thing to like use your legal skills for
1: i agree and and being able to see that effect as you say like super quickly
0: i love what she said about um kind of her role being sort of the fact that she liked that it was kind of campaigning and political but not kind of Mm. party political um, and mm. I just I, it's not something that had occurred I didn't know that those were roles that existed and I think it's just something you know when we think about using law to make the world a better place very often think of like human rights lawyers and Malth Clooney mm. and I mean, yeah. I mean fantastic as Amal Clooney is that like yeah. there are other
1: pathways more and... grounded
0: yeah. more like yeah like and there's lots of them you know like not that many people are going to be human rights lawyers, but there, there must be lots of law centres across the UK where people could make a real impact.
1: If you're interested in working in a law centre and qualifying as a solicitor, remember that the way you qualify is changing and under the new SQA, law centre legal work can count toward the 24 months legal work experience which the SQA requires. Listen to our chat with Victoria Roper to find out everything you need to know about the SQA. Also, Siobhan mentioned a number of organisations and groups that she's involved with, and we've posted all those links in our show notes. We'll be back later in the week with another lawyer doing some pretty incredible things. In the meantime, don't miss out on any of our episodes, which are available on Apple, Spotify and Acast. Make sure you like, leave a review, and subscribe. And you can find us on Instagram. Just search "Not All Lawyers Pod" and use the hashtag #NotAllLawyers. This has been "Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees" from the BBC's Legal Team.